This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm going to tell you about large-scale human modification of the planetary microbiome. We live in a microbial world. Everywhere we look on our planet and even in our bodies, we see complex microbial biofilms like this one. And in fact, there are 100 million times as many bacteria on Earth as there are stars in the universe. So you could say that, the micro, that microbiology is the ultimate in big data science. These numbers you might think of as astronomical numbers, we're now reclaiming as microbiological ones instead. Uh, new microbiome discoveries are changing how we see ourselves as human as well. So I'd like you to consider for a moment what you saw when you looked in the mirror this morning as you were getting up and getting ready to start your day. For myself, I saw an organism that's just 43% human, and not just because it was early and I hadn't had my coffee yet, but when we think of what makes up our bodies at the level of cells, to our 30 trillion human cells that carry the human genome, we have about 39 trillion microbial cells, and that's where that 43% number comes from. Now you might think, hey, wait a minute, it's the 21st century, rather than counting cells, shouldn't we think about our DNA? So let's think about that for a moment. To our 20,000 human genes, the size of our microbial gene catalogue is somewhere between 2 and 20 million microbial genes. And so by that measure, we're at best 1% human. And what's most shocking is that the 99% of genes that we ignore when we focus on the so-called human genome are the genes that we can change throughout our lifetime and also throughout our evolutionary history and our adaptation to new societal, uh, new societal changes. So humans are modifying microbiomes throughout our bodies and our planet. And uh, we're running out of time to understand these changes and track their impact, as I'll go through in today's talk. Uh, when we study people living very traditional lifestyles, closer to what our ancestors would experience, like the Hadza hunter-gatherers in Tanzania, which we've worked on with Justin Sonnenberg and others, what we see is a strong pattern of seasonality in the human microbiome, even in the gut, in ways that are strongly attenuated in Western populations like we study in the American Gut Project. And uh, these populations sort out automatically using the techniques I'll talk about later uh, along an axis where uh, on the left-hand side, you see people living very traditional lifestyles in the rainforest uh, or on the savannah. And on the right-hand side, you see people living in Western industrial, uh, industrialized cultures like our own. And this is coupled to a tremendous loss of diversity where entire phyla like the spirochetes that are common in non-human primates and uh, common in people living uh, traditional lifestyles are lost completely, and you see a much lower diversity community dominated by the Bacteroidaceae and the Veruca microbia and the more industrialized cultures. So it's almost as though we're taking the rich inner rainforest of our gut ecosystems and bulldozed it and turned it into a cityscape with much less diversity, where only the rats and the pigeons survive. And you might wonder what are the consequences of this, and I'm sure you're all familiar with Rachel Carson's work from the 1960s, uh, where she documented how attempts to get rid of single insect pest species with DDT and other chemicals had had far-reaching and adverse consequences for the diversity in the ecosystem. My good friend and colleague Marty Blazer, uh, now at Rutgers, wrote a wonderful book a few years ago, Missing Microbes, documenting how not just antibiotics, which made the cover, but all kinds of other things like increased use of C-section, uh, low-fiber diets, and all kinds of other aspects of modern civilization are decreasing our microbiome diversity in the gut. And uh, Marty loves to show the slide about why it matters. Uh, what we see is in the last part of the 20th century, where one disease after another caused by single organisms from measles to tuberculosis was brought under control. At the same time, we see an explosion of so-called chronic diseases ranging from asthma to multiple sclerosis. 
And uh, at the time that this, uh, this paper was published in the New England Journal of Medicine 20 years ago, none of those so-called non-communicable diseases had been linked to the microbiome in any way, whereas today we know all four of them are linked to the microbiome in humans and can be caused or cured by modifying the microbiome in animal models, and so can dozens of others, including many types of cancer. So to get a handle on uh, the complexity of the human uh, of the human microbiome, NIH funded the Human Microbiome Project, uh, which ran from uh, ran from two thousand eight uh, to uh, two thousand twelve, and uh, funded a huge number of labs across the country, including mine. And as part of this project, we looked at two hundred fifty healthy people at up to eighteen locations on the body, collected four and a half trillion bases of DNA sequence data. Now, if you're thinking of an organism that lives in your gut, you're probably thinking of this one. And it's true, I could get E. coli uh, out of pretty much anyone, um, anyone watching this. But uh, the reason we know so much about it is not because it's a dominant player in the gut ecosystem. It makes up only one cell in a thousand to one cell out of a million uh, in your gut if you're a healthy adult. But rather, we know a lot about it because it's great growing on a petri dish or in liquid culture. Uh, but as Norm Pace likes to say, studying organisms this way is like going down to the zoo, looking at each animal in its individual cage, knowing nothing about its ecosystem, its interactions, or its behavior in its natural environment. So what we have to do is we instead have to turn to culture-independent methods where we get all the DNA out of a sample and sequence it. But that leads to a big data challenge because each teaspoon of your stool has the amount of data in its DNA that it would take a ton of DVDs to store. Like I said, we collected four and a half trillion bases, uh, four and a half trillion A's, T's, G's, and C's in the Human Microbiome Project, 1,500 human genome equivalents, but then we had to analyze all this data. And here's a snippet, just a tiny snippet of the first file out of 17,000 in the HMP. And you can see you really have your work cut out for you trying to understand this data. And this is increasingly a problem, uh, not just from a research standpoint, but from a clinical standpoint, because I can tell you that it's your doctor's nightmare that you're going to show up in his or her office uh, with a big grin on your face and a list of a thousand species that they found in your gut by some kind of, uh, some, some kind of microbiome analysis. And I mean, what's your physician going to do? Refer you to colleagues in psychiatry for being crazy enough to think you could do something with that in the short time you have together? So a lot of our goal is to make it not crazy to integrate all of this data from around the human body and around the world uh, into profiles you can use. And to do this, we took a leaf quite literally from Darwin's book. And for those of you who haven't uh, reread his work on the origin of species recently, or perhaps read it at all, uh, the first edition is often considered a fairly dense read. So it's 502 pages, one figure. And so people who read it for the pictures are often disappointed. But I'd argue that you shouldn't be, because the one picture that Darwin thought was important enough to include was this one, the first rep representation of the phylogenetic tree as a way to organize life's diversity. So the next step was taken by Kathy Lozapone, one of my first graduate students, who I actually recruited to work on a totally different project, uh, but she persisted with her passion in uh, characterizing microbial diversity. As, as a result of not following my advice about what project was high impact and what to work on, it's safe to say she's done fine for herself. So she's now a, uh, she's now a tenured professor at the University of Colorado, where she's among the top three most highly cited people at that institution. And what she introduced uh, that's had such impact as part of her PhD thesis was this uh, distance metric called Unifrac, where we can exploit evolution at the whole community level. And so the intuition here is that if you have two identical communities like you have on the left, all of the tips of the tree representing modern uh, species that you find from their DNA, um, you find every, uh, every sequence in both the blue and the red community. Uh, so all the branches lead to both of them and they're shared, shown here in purple. And so none of them are unique. And we define that distance as zero. 
Whereas in contrast, if you have two completely unrelated communities like on the right, 100% of the branches are unique, leading only to the red or only to the blue, and we define that distance as one. And then any actual pair of communities will be in between that. And so what's so great about that is that we can combine this insight with Darwin's insight that there is one tree of life that connects everything from all environments, all organisms, and compare uh, as many communities as we like pairwise. So here showing red to yellow, red to blue, yellow to blue, where we compute the unifract distance between each pair of those, store them in a distance matrix, and then use various statistical techniques to analyze that distance matrix. So with this technique in hand, Kathy initially decided to look at everything, and she went to GenBank and downloaded tens of thousands of sequences covering the whole planet, everything from the poles to the equator, extremes of temperature, pH, just about every other biotic or abiotic factor you could imagine. And the question was, out of all this diversity, could we understand how life's environments were structured? And uh, amazingly, what we saw was this very clear split between saline and non-saline communities. You can see some blue points in there that are estuaries that truly are mixed. And if you're wondering about what about those factors like high temperature, they just don't make much difference as far as the bacteria are concerned. So for example, hot springs in Yellowstone and hydrothermal vents just look like the other non-saline and saline communities respectively. But in further work with Ruth Lay and Jeff Gordon, we were able to find some communities that were really extreme from the microbes perspective. When we add these communities, they introduce a new axis that explains twice as much of the inertia in the data set as that saline non-saline split. And you might ask, how far do you have to go to find these microbially extreme uh, communities? And the answer is that you don't have to go anywhere because they're right there within us. So the mammalian gut is especially weird from a microbiome perspective, uh, but so are other host-associated communities. And another way to look at the same data is as a network where we have a bipartite graph where nodes represent either kinds of microbes or samples that we were found in. And here we're coloring the edges by the sample type. And what you can see is that the, uh, the, the blue and the green for the human and the vertebrate gut respectively forms one large cluster in the graph. And then the free living environments in red form another large cluster. And then at the interface, like the skin and the mouth and various invertebrate communities are right at that border there. So we can see that microbiology in this very deep way forms a network connecting the human body to the planet. So how are we altering this network? Well, uh, when we look at the Human Microbiome Project data, and remember that these are all people living industrialized lifestyles, uh, we get this interpretable map from principal coordinates analysis of unifract distances. So remember each dot on this map is a whole microbiome read out from its DNA. Two dots are close together if they have more similar evolutionary histories of their microbes. They're further apart if they have more dissimilar evolutionary histories. Now remember there's no disease on this map, but uh, when I color by the main factor, uh, you can see immediately that the different body sites, the mouth, the skin, the vaginal and the fecal communities emerge like different continents. And uh, if I highlight the sample from the first person in the HMP, you see their mouth and their gut as in a totally different location shown by those yellow dots. But it wasn't until we did the Earth Microbiome Project that we truly understood uh, what the scale meant because we could look at samples from all over the planet uh, and ask what two samples are just as different as, as the mouth and the gut of this one individual. And if you think of your uh, mouth as being sort of like a coral reef uh, filled with complex biomineralized structures that are uh, covered with biofilms that maybe your dentist bugs you about, the amazing fact is your mouth is as far from your gut and its microbiome ecology as the water in that reef is from the dirt in this prairie. And we never expected that, right? That a few feet along a human body could make as much of a difference as thousands of miles across the Earth's surface. So uh, what is the Earth Microbiome Project, you might be wondering? Uh, well, it's a global collaborative effort led by uh, Jack Gilbert, uh, uh, Janet Jansen, and myself uh, to characterize microbial life across the planet. 
And uh, in the initial paper in 2017 in Nature, we looked at the first 27,000 samples, so they were up to hundreds of thousands now, uh, contributed by hundreds of scientists spanning uh, true extremes of just about every factor you could imagine. But unlike Kathy's earlier study, these are all done with a consistent protocol rather than being done in different studies with different protocols. And uh, this just gives you an idea of the distribution geographically, but if you look at the left-hand side, we let the microbes themselves tell us what was important and what was unimportant from their perspective to create a new ontology of environments uh, for pristine samples that we can now compare degraded samples to. Uh, we found that soil sediments and plant roots were the most diverse microbial ecosystems on planet Earth, not surprising given what was known from past studies. Uh, but we also found this fascinating principle of microbial osmosis, where low-complexity communities form a hierarchy uh, in a defined consistent subset of species from higher diversity communities. And we also found that if you do a crude high-level analysis at the genus level, the genera are universally distributed around the world, like in the top panel. But if you get down to the strain level, you find strains being selected for in unique environments. And that's where we have to look for primarily at where the microbial biodiversity is being preserved. So we can use this sort of data set combined with a technique called niche modeling, uh, which we did with Josh Ladau and uh, then Gladstone and Noah Ferrer at the University of Colorado to reconstruct even extinct ecosystems from relics. And so the tall grass prairie that used to cover most of North America is now largely extinct with only a few relics left between railroad ties and in graveyards. And uh, what, what we could do is we could use niche modeling and um, uh, reconstructions of past ecosystems to look from these relic communities at what the ecosystem would have looked like in terms of taxonomic diversity and functional gene diversity had people not completely restructured uh, all of these ecosystems with agriculture. And uh, Varroca microbia, which are among the dominant taxa uh, in, uh, in, in this um, tall grass ecosystem, are really hard to grow in the lab because they love carbon, but they don't like nitrogen. And so agriculture has basically wiped out this microbial ecosystem, but there's relics of it that we can restore from, and we can understand what it looked like before human intervention. Um, that's just one way that humans are messing up microbial ecosystems, and uh, other, other ways we're doing it include uh, agric agricultural practices like fertilizers, uh, agricultural emissions, uh, waste treatment, um, and their microbes are also involved in a lot of other processes that modify climate, such as uh, methane emissions from ruminants and from rice paddies. And uh, in fact, uh, microbes are so involved in different ecosystem processes that uh, a group of microbiologists um, summarized all of the information in this paper with a rather sobering title, Scientists Warning to Humanity, Microorganisms and Climate Change. And perhaps what's most sobering is that we know so little about these ecosystems. We know they're having a huge impact on, on climate and that we're modifying them, but we don't know that much about what we're doing specifically or what the consequences are. And that's true not just of terrestrial, but also marine ecosystems. So this is from work we did with Jack Gilbert. Uh, he's now at uh, UCSD as well on the Western English Channel, which is the waterway that separates the UK from Europe. And, um, and we did an initial analysis of one site over six years, looking at 72 samples, which at the time was a massive project, but it's tiny compared to the scale of what we can do now. And um, the goal was to look at seasonal microbial community structure and uh, then relate that to environmental variables. And so, um, and so what, was, what was cool about this is uh, we saw this extremely strong seasonal pattern um, that we could see with peaks and troughs. And then the question was, if you just look at one sample, how does the diversity in one sample correlate with the rest of the time series? And what we were able to show was that more abundant taxa were much more likely to persist through time. This is just showing the phylogenetic distribution from that paper. 
however, what was really interesting was these conditionally rare taxa that are rare most of the time, but occasionally become really common. And uh, although we derived this concept initially uh, with, with Ashley Shade and marine ecosystems, it turns out that it's a relatively rare uh, set of taxa in marine ecosystems compared to human-associated uh, uh, ecosystems and soils and streams, where these conditionally rare taxa are, in fact, much more important. And so this is really critical because it suggests that there are many rare taxa that remain viable but not culturable, uh, a concept introduced by Rita Colwell. And what was fascinating is that when we took one sample and went really deep into it, uh, what we found is that we found um, essentially 100% of all of the taxa throughout the, the whole time series in just one sample from just one month, uh, even though you have this profound pattern of environmental change. And what's more, uh, when we compared that data set to data sets around the world, what we found is that most of the microbes uh, from all over all of the marine, uh, marine systems, from rocky reefs uh, all the way to sediments in the abyssal zone, would be found in that seawater sample if you sequence deeply enough. And so this is really exciting from this perspective of being able to sequence deeply enough to saturate from a small number of samples. What, do the, uh, what does the microbial diversity look like? Uh, so that you can then match it up to different ecosystems around the world. It also suggests that you can find somewhere uh, microbes that are rare in your sample, but common in some other sample to do techniques like genome reconstruction that require more of the biospecimen. Uh, we're also very interested in linking uh, these two aspects, uh, the environment and human health, uh, through their microbiome ecologies. And uh, in this respect, we're doing a lot of work with Kim Prather, who runs CASE, the Large Atmospheric Chemistry Center here at UC San Diego, and who runs the world's largest wave research facility uh, in terms of being able to make breaking waves that create aerosols that exactly match the size particle distribution that you get uh, in, in the ocean. And um, the reason why this is important is atmospheric aerosols transport a lot of stuff, including, uh, including viruses and bacteria. And so this is satellite imagery from NASA uh, showing how they, uh, how they flow from one continent to another over time. And so Kim was running this uh, project called CalWater, uh, looking at how aerosols affect precipitation in California. And uh, what she found was a key role for atmospheric rivers that had a distinct microbial signature. And building on work that we'd done a few years prior with Noah Fira and Bob Bowers and at the University of Colorado at Boulder, um, what, uh, what Kim found was that microbes in the dust from as far away as Africa nucleated ice crystals over the Sierra Nevada range and um, altered the amount, uh, the amount of precipitation. And so in other words, microbes coming from Africa can, ex can explain whether or not we have a drought here in California, just underscoring the global connection and the impact on climate of these microbes. And, um, and, and climate isn't all they affect. So, um, so Kim and I are also working with Jane Burns, who runs the Kawasaki Disease Research Center here at UC San Diego. And Kawasaki disease is the most common cause of acquired heart disease in children. And uh, Jane says that she can tell when she needs to come into the clinic by reading the weather report, because as you can see in the graphs, in Japan and in San Diego and in Hawaii, the incidence of Kawasaki disease in red is tightly correlated with the amount of wind from a particular direction, shown here in blue. And so what we're trying to figure out at the moment is can we match microbes in clouds and in dust with those in an afflicted child's fingertips and airways. But this leads us to this question about what are the sources of microbes in clouds, and it's really easy to think about terrestrial dust because it's so easy to see, especially when it's the result of human activity. Uh, but the oceans cover a lot more of the planet uh, than, um, than sources of terrestrial dust do, 
And we know very little about how, uh, how microbes from seawater get into the clouds, as well as knowing much less about how human impacts are modifying seawater, especially at that critical ocean-atmosphere interface. And, um, and so, uh, so, so again with Kim, uh, we're, we're studying uh, how microbes launch themselves differentially into the sky, uh, depending on whether they're able to get from the bulk liquid phase into aerosol droplets. And then looking at how uh, this might be impacting everything from COVID-19 transmission from the Tijuana estuary uh, to ice nucleating bacteria that modify climates. And being able to take these kinds of things all the way from large-scale ecosystems into the lab is really important. But humans are also creating completely new kinds of environment. And so one really important one is the plastosphere, where the plastics, including microplastics that we release into the environment, recruit and enrich for a very low diversity but very systematic community wherever it is in the world. And so understanding how we're creating these completely new kinds of environment that microbes have never seen before and what the consequences are for microbial diversity is really important, as well as understanding uh, why we see such low diversity communities and human impacted lakes and soils and rivers and sediments and other environments around the world, as well as when you take any of these uh, microbial ecosystems and bring them into the lab, why is it that the diversity is reduced so much? So uh, to sum up, um, uh, I was asked to talk about how humanity is changing the world's microbiomes. Uh, we're depleting diversity, uh, both in our own bodies and in many places in the environment. But the microbes that are rare everywhere, um, uh, almost everywhere, are common somewhere. So there's still hope. It's still likely not too late to save Earth's endangered microbes and make a difference. And this reminds me of a talk I saw from Jeremy Jackson, who was in at, um, who was in at SIO when I was in grad school, where uh, he contrasted terrestrial ecosystems, where from the Pleistocene, there just aren't any mammoths left anywhere on Earth. But then if you look at marine ecosystems, there are still manatees, there are still sea turtles and so forth. Uh, they're just rare in most places, but you could reintroduce them. And so microbes are like that, in that uh, we think that most of the microbes are rare somewhere, but they still exist and we can find them and reintroduce them to restore natural ecosystems. And to this end, uh, Jack and I, together with Maria Gloria Dominguez-Bello and Marty Blazer, uh, called for an effort to uh, create a microbial seed bank, where the idea is that if we can preserve this microbial diversity in Svalbard or some other similarly resistant site, uh, we'll, be able to, we'll be able to store the seeds of these threatened microbiomes uh, from different kinds of micro, microbiome diversity around the planet, and then be able to restore that microbial diversity when we have the techniques to grow all those kinds of microbes, because most of them we don't know how to grow in the lab yet, uh, and, uh, and, and restore all of these different kinds of ecosystems, both in our environment and uh, with a view to combating all those chronic diseases in which we now microbes are involved. So with that, uh, I'd like to thank literally over a thousand collaborators, only a few of whom I was able to uh, name during this talk, uh, who've contributed to this research, uh, the many amazing people in my lab over the years, uh, our many different sources of funding who support all this stuff, and the tens of thousands of members of the public and the hundreds of scientists who've contributed to the American Gut Project and the Earth Microbiome Project by sending in their samples. And with that, uh, thanks again for the opportunity to speak at this wonderful symposium, and I'm really looking forward to the rest of it. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.